0: Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, editor of the Beyond the Pearls OBGYN series, and welcome back to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a 14-year-old girl with heavy menstrual bleeding since menarche. We're going to be talking about abnormal bleeding in women in this age population and exploring a little bit about abnormal period workup and management. This is case 50 on page 338 of the Beyond the Pearls OBGYN book. For those of you who are following along in the paper edition, this case was written by Dr. Lauren Domley, who is an assistant professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology, Department of Women's and Infant Services, and the Division of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And she's in the Department of Surgery at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. So let's meet our patient. This is a 14-year-old girl with a one-year history of heavy menstrual bleeding presenting to the office with her mother. She reports that she started menses at age 12, so pretty standard. She states that she menstruates every 27 to 29 days. She has been tracking it using her phone, and her menstrual bleeding lasts six to seven days. So, so far, we know that she's pretty regular and that her duration of menses is pretty standard as well. However, during her menstrual period, she passes large clots has a sensation of flooding, and has episodes where blood overflows her sanitary pad, including such accidents at school. She complains of fatigue and quit the school soccer team as a result. So what additional history would be helpful to assess this patient further? First of all, it's important to ask patients with heavy menstrual bleeding, especially adolescents, about a history of other types of bleeding, such as epistaxis, nosebleeds, or surgical bleeding. A pictorial bleeding assessment calendar can also be useful in quantifying blood loss. So an example is shown in the paper copy, and I'll summarize it here for you on the podcast. So an example is a pictorial chart where patients tally their menstrual products every day during their menstrual cycle. For example, a lightly soaked product uh, is one point, a moderately soaked is five points, and a heavily soaked is 20 points, and small clots receive one point and large clots five points. A score of 100 or more indicates significant heavy menstrual bleeding. So these charts are uh, available widely and can be found on the internet to help assess patients in a more standard way. So getting back to the history we would take from this young lady, family history of bleeding disorders and the menstrual history of the patient's mother and sisters are also significant. Finally, a confidential interview is essential to determine her level of sexual activity and her risk for sexually transmitted infections, otherwise known as STIs, and assess possible contraceptive needs that may influence the diagnosis and the treatment. So a little clinical pearl, the HEADS, H-E-A-D-S-S acronym, can be used to remember the key topics of the social history for an adolescent patient. And these should be in a confidential interview with the adolescent, if you have an adolescent in your clinic, being assessed for this issue or other issues. So the H of HEADS is home, the living situation, family composition, history of incarceration, or running away. The E is for education and employment, school attendance, performance, after-school jobs, and future career plans. A is for activities, sports, extracurriculars, and the peer group. D is for drugs, used by peers, family members, and the patient themselves, including alcohol and tobacco. S is for sexuality, sexual orientation, number of partners, contraception, history of STIs, sexual abuse, or sexual assault as a victim. The second S is for suicide or depression. Depressive symptoms such as self-harm, cutting suicidal thoughts or plans are very important to capture from adolescents, as this is such a common morbidity and mortality in this population. So let's go back to our patient. We take this thorough history and the patient and her mother report that she had a tonsillectomy at five years old, which is uncomplicated. But she does report a history of frequent nosebleeds and easy bruising. Her mother had a postpartum hemorrhage when she delivered her daughter and has since had an endometrial ablation for heavy menstrual bleeding. During a confidential interview, the patient denies any past sexual activity and does not intend to have sex any time in the near future. So what's the differential diagnosis of abnormal uterine bleeding in an adolescent like this one? Remember, she's only 14 years old and she started her menses at 12. So abnormal uterine bleeding, or AUB, can be the result of heavy menstrual bleeding or intermenstrual bleeding. The mnemonic PALM-COEIN, P-A-L-M-C-O-E-I-N, is used to remember the potential etiologies of AUB just as with adults. But the most common etiologies are different in adolescents. so keep that in mind. Structural causes and malignancy, the palm portion of the palm-Cohen system, are extremely rare in adolescent women. However, psychological and physiologic causes of the Cohen portion are more common. Ovulatory dysfunction, secondary to immaturity of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian, or the HPO axis, are particularly common in adolescents. Pregnancy-related uterine bleeding and STIs, like cervicitis or pelvic inflammatory disease, can also cause AUB in this age group. Any adolescent female with a history of heavy AUB resulting in anemia, transfusion, or severe symptoms should be evaluated for a bleeding disorder, because 10 to 62%, I know that's a wide range, but as much as 10% at a minimum, of adolescents that have heavy menstrual bleeding have an underlying coagulation disorder. So very important to evaluate this for and screen, do the testing. We'll get to that a little bit later in this chapter. So going back to our patient, on physical exam, her temperature is 37 Celsius. Blood pressure is 115 over 64 millimeters mercury. Heart rate is 75 per minute. Respiration rate is 14 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. Very normal vital signs. Her height is 63 inches and weight is 114 pounds for a body mass index of 20.2 kgs per meter squared, which is a normal BMI. She is well-developed, well-nourished teenager and no apparent distress. Her conjunctiva are pale. There are no ecchymoses or petechiae noted on her skin, and her cardiac and pulmonary exams are normal. Her abdomen is soft and non-tender with pal- no palpable masses. A limited genital urinary exam reveals normal external female genitalia, tan or four development, a patent vaginal opening and an estrogenized hymen. An internal exam is not performed given the patient's young age. Keep in mind, there's no indication to do an internal exam of the vagina or of the pelvis, such as a bimanual in a woman that doesn't have indications for say cervical cancer screening or indications that they might have some sort of adnexal mass. So what laboratory tests or radiology studies could be ordered in evaluation of this patient? In addition to the physical exam that we already did, A female with heavy menstrual bleeding needs to be evaluated for possible anemia, so doing a complete blood count. Iron studies and ferritin should be added if anemia is found on the CBC. For the evaluation of heavy AUB, since menarche, like in this patient, coagulation studies are recommended. Remember that 10 to 62% of them have coagulopathy. If menstrual bleeding patterns are irregular, so cycles last less than 21 days or longer than 40 in an adolescent patient, An endocrine workup might be considered including thyroid stimulating hormone TSH, prolactin follicle stimulating hormone known as FSH, luteinizing hormone or LH, and androgens which are testosterone, DHEAS, and 17-hydroxyprogesterone, 17-OHP. So once again, the workup for endocrine includes TSH, FSH, LH, and androgens. For patients who are sexually active, STI screening is indicated, and all menstruating females with AUB, regardless of their report of sexual activity, do need a urine pregnancy test. Never forget the urine pregnancy test. Imaging of the female pelvis is not always indicated because structural abnormalities such as leiomyometa and endometrial polyps are pretty rare in adolescent women. An ultrasound might be helpful to evaluate the ovaries in a patient in whom polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, symptoms manifest. Ultrasonography is also indicating a patient with severe pain or palpable mass on physical examination. So someone who had an abnormal abdominal exam, unlike this patient, might need some imaging. But based on this physical exam, which is pretty normal except for some pale conjunctiva, we're not probably going to be doing uh, imaging in her. However, should this patient be evaluated for a bleeding disorder? Yes. For example, Von Willebrand's disease, or VWD, is the most common bleeding disorder diagnosed in women and often presents as heavy menstrual bleeding at the time of menarche, just like this woman is reporting. Reported prevalence ranges from 1-2% to among African-American girls with heavy AUB and 10-20% among Caucasian girls with heavy menses. Patients may have a history of recurrent epistaxis, nosebleeds, or easy bruising, but not necessarily. Platelet function uh, dysfunction disorders can also be present in heavy bleeding at the time of menarche. The laboratory evaluation for VWD is a panel of three tests, von Willebrand's factor, or VWF antigen, so VWF antigen, von Willebrand, Ristocetin cofactor activity, and factor VIII activity. Platelet function tests such as bleeding time, like prothrombin time, and the partial thromboplastin time, PTT, are needed to diagnose a platelet dysfunction disorder. So this patient has need for that workup. Her laboratory tests are as follows. She has a urine beta HCG, a pregnancy test, which is negative, leukocytes, which are 6,700 per microliter, hemoglobin of 9.1 grams per deciliter, a hematocrit of 27.3%, platelets of 213,000 per microliter, an MCV of 74.8 FL. A prothrombin time of 13.4 seconds and a partial thromboplastin time of 29.8 seconds. She has a TIBC, a total iron binding capacity of 412 micrograms per deciliter. Serum iron is 34 micrograms per deciliter and ferritin is 5 Ng per ml. Her von Willebrand factor activity is 24 IU per DL, and her von Willebrand ristocetin cofactor activity is 28 IU per DL. Her factor 8 activity is 67%. Ultrasound imaging is not recommended in this patient at this time. After the results you receive, you meet with the patient or mother to discuss the diagnosis and the treatment plan. What you do is you inform the patient that her diagnosis are von Willebrand's disease because of her abnormal von Willebrand's labs and iron deficiency anemia because of her low hemoglobin and hematocrit with low iron studies. In addition to referring the patient for a hematology consultation, you discuss immediate plans for treatment of anemia and control of heavy menstrual bleeding. So how is iron deficiency anemia treated? So iron deficiency is treated with iron replacement. It's usually at a dose of 15 to 30 milligrams per kg per day of oral elemental iron divided into two to three daily doses. So they're going to be taking things two to three times a day. Iron supplementation is given in the form of ferrous salt tablets, such as ferrous sulfate, which is usually 325 milligrams and contains 65 milligrams of elemental iron. Ferrous gluconate, which is 325 milligrams and contains 36 milligrams of elemental iron. So little over half of what the ferrous sulfate had. Or ferrous fumarate, which is also 325 milligrams and contains 105 milligrams of elemental iron. So the most elemental iron Uh, per the 325 tablet. There's also a liquid formulation. It's 15 milligrams per mil elemental iron. With appropriate replacement and control of blood loss, anemia should resolve within six to eight weeks. So you don't expect it to be quick, but it does happen uh, steadily and slowly. A little clinical pearl. Iron supplements should not be taken with calcium-rich foods or within two hours of an antacin medication that has calcium. Co-administration with 250 milligrams of ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, or a small glass of orange juice can enhance absorption. So what's the pathophysiology of von Willebrand's disease, which we've diagnosed this patient with? VWD is caused by abnormal von Willebrand's factor, and von Willebrand's factor is a protein that binds platelets and endothelial components at the site of an endothelial injury, and it acts as a carrier protein for factor VIII, thereby contributing to fibrin clot formation quantitative and qualitative defects in von Willebrand's factor lead to impaired hemostasis and are known as type one and type two von Willebrand's disease, respectively. So quantitative defects in von Willebrand's factor, not having enough, is type one. And qualitative defects in von Willebrand's factor, it works abnormally, is type two. Type three von Willebrand's disease is caused by a complete absence of von Willebrand's factor and is both very severe and extremely rare. VWD is the most common bleeding disorder in the general population, and it's about 1% of randomly tested patients, so not necessarily folks that have symptoms like this one. To confirm a diagnosis of VWD, the levels of less than 30 IU per DL for von Willebrand's factor or Ristocetin cofactor activity level must be documented. So remember, this patient had a von Willebrand's factor activity of 24 and a von Willebrand's Ristocetin cofactor activity of 28. So it was less than 30 on both values. That's how we diagnosed her. If levels are low but not diagnostic, the labs can be repeated since there can be variation in values on different days. little basic science pearl for step one. Most cases of von Willebrand's disease are autosomal dominant and can affect males and females although an acquired form of the disease does exist. In contrast, hemophilia A, which is a factor VIII deficiency, and hemophilia B, which is a factor IX deficiency, are X-linked disorders that are only expressed in male offspring of female carriers. So should the patient's heavy menses be treated? How are we going to do that? The management of heavy menstrual bleeding depends on the underlying etiology. So in this case, Von Willebrand's disease meaning that infectious causes are treated with antibiotics, endocrine causes with hormone treatment, and so on. Adolescents with a bleeding disorder, as well as those with heavy bleeding without a specific etiology that can be found, should be managed with either progestin or combined progestin and estrogen therapies to prevent menses or to make menses less frequent. First-line therapy is combined oral contraceptive medications containing ethanol, estradiol, and progestin given in the form of oral contraceptive pills, otherwise known as OCPs. They can also be given in the form of a vaginal ring or a transdermal patch. So the ring and the patch will contain both ethanol, estradiol, and the progestin component. There's also progestin releasing intrauterine devices that be, can be considered first line, especially in sexually active adolescents or those who have a contraindication to having some sort of estrogen or ethanol estradiol in their contraceptive use. Progestin only pills, otherwise known as POPs, and medroxyprogesterone acetate, DMPA, intramuscular injections are also options to decrease menstrual bleeding. A little basic science pearl estradiol is produced through a process of aromatization of androgens which are produced in the ovaries' theca cells. Progesterone is secreted by the corpus luteum, a functional cyst that develops after ovulation during the normal menstrual cycle. Pharmacologic administration of progesterone causes thinning or atrophy of the endometrial lining, while estrogen stabilizes the lining. So what are the risks and benefits of combined OCPs? Combination estrogen-progestin contraception provides the benefit of decreased menstrual bleeding and the possibility of increasing the interval between menstrual bleeding episodes. With use for at least five years, there's a significant reduction in the future risk of ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer. However, estrogen containing therapies increase the risk of venous thromboembolism. Patients with a family history of VTE, personal known thrombophilia, or personal risk factors such as a poorly controlled diabetes mellitus or chronic hypertension should consider progestin-only therapies. So let's go back to our patient for a minute now that we know what the options are. Once you counsel the patient about her diagnosis and possible treatment options, she and her family express worry about future bleeding episodes. The patient asks, what if someday I bleed so much that I pass out or have to go to the emergency room? So how could acute heavy vaginal bleeding be managed in an adolescent patient? That's a real worry, very legitimate. Part of the treatment of coagulation disorder is to empower the patient and the family with education about what levels of bleeding are abnormal, how and why to access emergency care, and what to tell new providers about their history. In emergency setting, high doses of estrogen and progesterone are needed to stop acute bleeding. So combined OCPs giving in higher doses are very effective. There are multiple regimens, but one simple strategy is to give four tablets of combined OCP that contains... 30 or 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol at time of initial presentation. If the patient is stable for discharge home, she can be instructed to take three tablets per day until the bleeding ceases, and then take two tablets per day for 14 days, followed by one pill per day until she's seen in the office. It's important to instruct the patient to only take the active pills in the package and discard the placebo pills. Alternative treatments for heavy emergent bleeding are intravenous estrogen or high-dose progestins. Patients who are also hemodynamically unstable will need administration to the hospital. Adequate intravenous access and fluid resuscitation would be necessary, and transfusion with PAC red blood cells may be necessary if indicated. So basic science pearl, along with being a clinical pearl, in von Willebrand's disease, like our patient has, von Willebrand factor defects prevent platelet cross-linking. So transfusing more platelets will not allow a patient with von Willebrand's disease to improve their coagulation, because no matter how many platelets you have, they can't cross-link. For this reason, patients with this disorder do not benefit from other transfusion products like cryoprecipitate. For episodes of hemorrhage, factor VIII concentrates, which also contain von Willebrand factor, such as Humate-P, can be used to treat them. So let's talk about this patient one last time. This patient elects to start using therapy with combined OCPs. Due to her diagnosis of VWD and iron deficiency anemia, you recommend continuous OCPs and iron replacement. She returns after three months and reports that her menstrual bleeding is significantly decreased, and she's been compliant with her iron supplementation. Remember, we expect it to take six to eight weeks for her to improve with her anemia. Repeat laboratory studies then are reasonable, and in her they reveal a hemoglobin level of 11.1 grams per deciliner and a hematocrit of 32.2%. You advise her to continue her OCPs and take a daily multivitamin-containing iron. So now let's go beyond the pearls, a little extra information. First, Tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic medication that decreases plasma formation and fibrinolysis. It's approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, since 2009 for the treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding, and it's used in a dose of 1,300 milligrams orally, three times per day, for a maximum of five days during bleeding. Second, many factors can spuriously influence the findings in von Willebrand factor laboratory studies. We talked already about how they can vary day to day. Exogenous estrogens, such as OCPs, can falsely increase the detected activity and quantity of VWF, as can exercise and stress, interestingly. Also, patients with type O blood have von Willebrand factor levels about 25 to 30% lower than other blood types, so that's something to think about. Synthetic vasopressin, which is desmopressin or DDAVP, stimulates the release of VWF into the plasma, so that can be used to treat VWD. Patients can receive factor eight or concentrates of DDAVP in emergencies or prior to surgeries to give them eight to 10 hours of improved clotting if they needed, say, an invasive procedure. So let's summarize our case with this young lady. This was a 14-year-old girl with heavy menstrual bleeding since menarche, a history of easy bruising, and a family history of heavy menstrual bleeding who presented to your office and had prolonged bleeding times, decreased factor eight in von Willebrand factor activity, and iron deficiency anemia. Her findings were consistent with VWD. She was started on OCPs and had a more regular menses with less heavy bleeding, and she takes oral iron with improvement in her anemia and iron studies when she followed up a few months later. You educated the patient and her family, very importantly, on VWD and prepared them with a plan to access medical care and receive treatment in the event of the bleeding emergency. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.